Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is Session 6 of This Means War, a new weekly podcast series on Bible battles that symbolize contemporary situations. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma, for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. In this sixth episode, we will examine the battle Gideon and his men fought against the Midianites for the symbolism it holds for modern Christians faced with fighting evil. And then we'll see how other verses support that symbolism. So go with me to the time of the judges. This was somewhere around 14 or 1500 to about 1900 BC. The children of Israel have already spent 40 years in the wilderness and have come across with Moses. And then after Moses and that generation died, his right-hand man Joshua was raised up as leader to help the people conquer the land of Canaan. Then when that generation died, they were still hundreds of years before becoming a monarchy and judges were their rulers. They got into this sad cycle, though, where they would serve the Lord but then fall into sin and idolatry, and then the Lord would allow them to become enslaved or oppressed by some nation around them, and they would eventually cry out to Him for help, and then He would raise up a judge who was a prophet and who might do great things and help them turn back to the Lord, And then they would be delivered from their enemies, and then they would serve him for a while. So this particular story has a background in Judges 6, and the main thing I want to focus on is in Judges 7. But the judge is number five in the series of about ten that are featured in the book of Judges. And judge number five is Gideon. I won't read all of Judges 6, but I'll give you a background. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Well, the Midianites actually were descendants of Abraham. You may recall that Abraham was married to Sarah and that she gave birth to Isaac and then Isaac was the progenitor of the Israelites. But she also had a maid, Hagar, who gave birth to Ishmael. And after Sarah died, Abraham married again in his extreme old age, a woman whose name was Keturah, and she had six sons. Sometimes people forget about that. The fourth son that Keturah had was named Midian. And so these Midianite enemies that had come against Israel in the time of the judges were actually also descendants of Abraham, just like the Jewish people. And they had gotten into the habit of completely stripping the land of all of the harvest every time the fall came. They would come in with their camels, and it would be like seeing locusts descend, and they would take any farm animals that were available, and all of the crops. So Gideon is now, we're in verse 11, having an encounter with an angel who is ready to deliver the people. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, 
where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So he had managed to hold back a little wheat from the eyes of the Midianites, and he had it in a safe place down by this wine press, and he was separating the grain from the chaff and getting ready to grind a little flour for some bread. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And that's an interesting thing to call a scared man. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Didn't the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The angel goes on and tells Gideon that, Yes, God has called him to raise up an army, and he is to completely destroy the Midianites. And in verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? So Gideon asks for a sign, and he asks the angel to stay put long enough for him to go and get some things for a sacrifice. And he goes and makes some unleavened bread and gets a goat, brings them and offers them to the angel. And the angel tells him to spread them out on a rock there. And then the angel strikes the rock and the sacrifice goes up in flames and the angel disappears. So Gideon realizes that he really has had an encounter with the Lord through this angel. And then he asks for another sign. He says, Lord, I'm sorry to ask, but would you please confirm that this is really what you want me to do? I have a fleece here, you know, a piece of wool, and I'm going to put this down here on the ground tonight. And when I get up in the morning, I want it to be soaking wet, but all of the ground around it should be dry and not have any dew. So when he got up the next morning, that's exactly what had happened. The fleece was so wet that he could wring a bowl full of water out of it, but the ground was dry. Then he asked for one additional sign. He said, Lord, in the morning I'm asking you that this fleece be dry and all the ground around it have dew on it. And that also occurred. And so Gideon is set and he's ready to lead the people that he can get together for an army. So now we're in Judges chapter 7. Early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Mori. Now he had put together a, a battalion of men, and the logistics of that are interesting. They're not given in detail, but imagine what you would have to do to go out in a low-tech age and put out the word that you were amassing an army to fight the Midianites that had so oppressed the people for seven long years. And how would they be trained? What would they wear that would identify them as part of the Israelite army? What kind of weapons would they have with them? So he must have had a man, uh, been a person that had a lot of natural leadership ability and he must have been able to delegate some of this responsibility of literally going door to door to put together a group of people. He had 32,000 people when he was ready to go to battle. So now we're in Judges 7, verse 2. 
The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Okay, so the first requirement for being a part of Gideon's army was to be fearless. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Right then, more than two-thirds of his army left. They went home. They admitted that they were scared. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. So here we have requirement number two for being in Gideon's army. And that was that when they come to the water to drink, instead of going down on their face, on their knees, and sucking the water in with their eyes down, they have to bring the water up in their two cupped hands and keep their faces up and lap the water. In other words, they had to be vigilant or wary or watchful. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. So the original 32,000 member army was first cut down to 10,000 and then from 10,000 down to 300. So 300 out of 10,000, that's only 3% of the already winnowed down to 10,000 group of men. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. And it's interesting there that he didn't say the 300 men that lapped will save you. He said he was going to do it, but he was going to use this very small group. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now, the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Purah, and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So he's still emphasizing that he wants fearlessness. It's a little difficult not to be afraid when you're the leader of a little group of 300 people that are supposed to attack an army or a group of people that have already been described in the sixth chapter of Judges as being as numerous as locusts. And so he tells him to go down in the middle of the night. He and Purah, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. Now, I don't know whether this man was inside or outside of a tent. I picture him inside a tent. 
and maybe there was a lantern burning and you could see their silhouettes against the material of the tent, or maybe they were outside. But Gideon and Pura sneak up on this camp and they can hear these guys talking. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. What a strange random dream. And now we have a marvelous example of how God's Spirit can use even people who are not uh, subservient or submitted to Him. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped God. Imagine the Lord giving a prophetic word to one of the Midianite soldiers that is getting ready to be destroyed by his mighty power. Gideon returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Well, what a strange, strange thing to give soldiers before they go into battle. This was a low-tech age. So what would you arm your soldiers with in that time? Maybe a javelin? Maybe a spear? Maybe a sword? Or some kind of bayonet? Maybe a slingshot, if nothing else, but trumpets? Empty jars with torches inside? What could he possibly have been thinking? Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. So these clay jars do have a torch inside, but they're not making a lot of light for everyone to see. They're just getting enough oxygen through their open top to stay burning, but you can't see them because they're not clear. They're clay. But now the jars are broken, and as the clay cracks, then the light becomes visible. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Well, isn't that strange? The one thing that perhaps they should have brought into the battle, a sword they are talking about, but they don't actually have. Why would you be yelling about a sword in battle instead of carrying one? Verse 21, while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords the army fled to Beth Shittah near Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Mahala near Tabith. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. 
Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as beth Bera. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as beth Bera. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. So their leaders were beheaded, and they were completely and totally conquered, defeated, and the victory was complete. So we look back on this strange battle that was begun with only 300 men. And think about these requirements for being a part of this army. The first requirement was fearlessness. Fearlessness is a component of faith. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's what the Lord was saying to Joshua when it was his turn to lead the Israelites after Moses had died and it was time to conquer the land of Canaan. Years and years before Gideon came on the scene, he told him not to be afraid. In many other places, the Lord tells people that he appears to not to be afraid. The angel Gabriel told Mary, who was to become the mother of the Messiah, not to be afraid. When you're afraid, you're saying you think that you are in danger. But when a person is completely faith-filled, then they are confident that the Lord will take care of them. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Being fearless doesn't necessarily mean that you are certain that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. That's not scriptural. Bad things do happen. But if you know that God is holding your hand, Whatever he has in store for you to take you through, he is in control, he will be glorified, and you will ultimately be okay in eternity. Psalm 23, 4, you know what the 23rd Psalm says. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He doesn't say, I will fear no evil because I am absolutely certain that nothing will ever happen to me that's bad. David went through a lot of difficult times, but the Lord was with him. Psalm 27, 1. Here's David again. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So the very first requirement for Gideon's army was that they absolutely not be afraid of what was coming next, even though they were going against this army that was so numerous and had oppressed them for seven years. No fear. The second important requirement was that they be vigilant. Remember, they were supposed to be the men that took the water that they were going to drink in cupped hands and brought up to their mouths and lapped like a dog so they didn't have to put their eyes down. 
So this seems to be the other end of the spectrum when you're thinking about faith from fearlessness. Fearlessness helps us not to be worried about what's coming, and yet that doesn't mean we shouldn't be watchful and careful to do what we know to do. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Did you catch that? In the faith. Act like men. Be strong. You know, in Aesop's fable of the tortoise and the hare, the hare was fearless. He thought he had that race made in the shade. No problem at all. But he lost because he was not also vigilant. If he had been watchful instead of taking a nap while the tortoise just marched on, marched on toward the finish line, he wouldn't have lost the race. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, So then let us not sleep, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. What do you need to do in your battle against evil, whether it's a conflict in your family or in your community or in your church? What do you need to do in standing up for righteousness that would require you to be watchful and sober and careful and vigilant? Maybe you need to be vigilant about what you say and not say anything that would be unchristlike or would allow the enemy to have a reason to accuse you. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So if our enemy is a roaring lion, we can be fearless, but we also absolutely must be watchful. Then the third of the three requirements for being in Gideon's army, besides being fearless and vigilant, was that they be armed, and they were to be armed with some very strange things. The first thing was the trumpet. Why would you waste a hand to carry something by taking a trumpet into battle? Well, trumpets can be used to sound an alarm. We see in Joel chapter 2 verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. You remember that trumpets were used in the battle that Joshua and his men fought against Jericho before the walls of the city came down? And we talked then about how in Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 and 17, we read about Jesus having a voice like a trumpet as he warned the people of coming judgment. John says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Then you skip down, and he identifies the one with the loud voice like a trumpet to be the Christ. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. And so the trumpet 
was Gideon, his army's way of saying, beware, be forewarned, here we are, judgment is coming, the time is here. And today, as we go against evil, we can take this trumpet, which is like the word of God, and we can present to the world what God says from the Bible and expect that things will change for his honor and glory. The second thing that they had to be armed with was a pitcher with a light in it, a clay pitcher that held the light inside that had to be broken for the light to shine forth. We can get another idea of what this symbolism is from what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 7. Paul said, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory. Are you catching this? Light shining out of darkness. Well, that's what happened in the battle that Gideon and his men fought. They went at night, and it was dark, and the light shined out of darkness. And it was the knowledge of God's glory that the people received when they opened their eyes in horror and terror and surprise to see that the army of the Lord was upon them. But now get this, displayed in the face of Christ, but we have this treasure, you know, this light of the knowledge of God's glory. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So the jar of clay is our own flesh. And isn't it interesting that the jar of clay had to be broken for the light to shine forth? So as we are broken, as we are submissive and repentant and obedient and useful to God, willing to do what he's calling us to do, then the light that's in our hearts from him shines forth to the world. Maybe you have heard of the Gideons International that distributes the scriptures all around the world. They have distributed, distributed more than two billion copies of God's word. That's hard to even understand. And their symbol is a jar with a light on top. What on earth does that have to do with passing out Bibles? Well, they are called the Gideons because of this very story and that broken jar with the light shining out, the purpose was to proclaim the word of the Lord. Which brings us to the third point in this, what they were armed with. First, they had a trumpet, and then they had a clay jar with a light inside. But the third thing was their own words. They were supposed to say, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Why would you say something that you didn't have? It was symbolic of God's word. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 
Do you remember that in Revelation chapter 19, the final battle against evil that Jesus fought, he is depicted as the word of God and a sword comes out of his mouth. The passage begins with verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Like it says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus Christ is the living Word of God. But we go on. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And here we are, verse 15, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. If I had been guessing, I would have thought maybe that the sharp sword would be in his right hand, but why would it be coming out of his mouth? Because he conquers by his very word. It was the word of God that brought the universe into existence. And so, in the same way that Gideon and his men shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon and were then victorious when there was no actual physical sword. It was merely the words God had told them to say that gave them the victory and the light that shined forth and the blaring trumpet. We can have victory when we fight a battle for right if we correctly use the Word of God. And this is overall a picture of faith. We have the fearlessness of the people, the vigilance of the people and their watchfulness, and then the sword, which was simply their words, the pitcher with the light and the trumpets. So Hebrews chapter 11, which gives a long list of people of faith, actually mentions Gideon. Verses 32 and 33 of Hebrews 11, and what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and that was certainly true for Gideon. He was scared and threshing a little bit of wheat when he was called by the angel, but his weakness was certainly turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. A picture of faith. And so, if you're in a spiritual battle, you can be fearless but wary and arm yourself with the word. If you are a broken vessel whose inside is filled with the light of God's word, you can have the victory. 
If this podcast has been a help to you, please pass it along. 